Welcome to the first take, First Word Pharma's weekly discussion of the latest news from the pharma and biotech sectors. My name's Simon King. I'm one of the editors of First Word Pharma, and I'm joined with me today by my colleagues, Virginia Lee and Michael Flanagan. On this episode, we're going to be talking about some notable new disclosures in the field of allogeneic CAR-T therapy, looking at the approval of Eli Lilly's Visenio for early-stage breast cancer, uh, engaging whether recently announced early-stage data for drugs targeting OX40 could mark a paradigm shift in the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And we'll also be discussing um, rumours about who the next FDA commissioner could be. So let's start off with um, what has been a a couple of big ticket news items in the allogeneic CAR-T field uh, recently. Um, Right at the end of last week, we had confirmation from Allergene that all of its um, allogeneic CAR-T programs have been put on hold by the FDA due to a chromosomal abnormality detected in one patient. And then we had some data that was presented by CRISPR Therapeutics this week um, for their most advanced therapy, which is being tested in lymphoma patients. Uh, Virginia, I know you've been sort of looking at this a bit more closely. Where would the best place to start be? Should we sort of focus on the allergene stuff first uh, in terms of, you know, what's sort of happened? What's what's the issue that's been raised? And what effect do you think that's going to have on other allergenic candidates in general? Uh, sure, yeah, we can, we can start there. I mean, allergene and CRISPR are using different gene editing techniques for their therapies. And in general, what I've seen from analysts is that they don't expect this hold to have much read through to other allergenic programs. But, um, you know, the company hasn't shared that much about the abnormality itself that they're seeing and whether it will have any impact on the risk benefit profile. So this is really just an open question right now and and we're waiting for more information from the company about those conversations with the FDA. Um, But as far as read through to other programs, it seems like it'll be rather limited. At least that's how folks are thinking about it for now. Okay. And then in terms of the data that CRISPR has announced this week, what was your main kind of takeaway of, of those results? So Yeah, so what we saw was that the initial efficacy profile is comparable to what we've seen with commercial autologous therapies, and in general, it's looking better in terms of safety, and the big question that remains is over durability. So in the CARBON trial, there was a lot of focus on the six-month complete response rate after a single dose, which fell to 21% from 38% at one month, and is a bit lower than what we've seen with autologous programs and competing allogeneic programs. And I think the big thing is that the conversation around allogeneic therapies generally is now shifting from durability of single doses to redosing, which is easier to do with an off-the-shelf program. And CRISPR is going to be expanding this registrational, is expanding carbon into a registrational study, and they'll be evaluating a redosing regimen to see if that can improve the depth of response and the duration of response in these patients. Okay. And have we got any kind of 
idea based on, I guess, what will be limited data at the moment because it's in a small number of patients, but any idea what the likelihood of success will be with this kind of redosing strategy? Yeah, there's some enthusiasm behind it. So, so far they've only redosed eight patients and it's hard to draw conclusions out of that so far, but of those eight patients, uh, we've seen that three have an ongoing response, two responded and then relapsed, and then three never responded. So there's going to be a lot of attention on the optimal timing for a second dose and then whether that will be able to give them a leg up over autologous therapies. And CRISPR's uh, trial is going to assess a regimen in which the second dose is administered one month after the first one. Okay. Okay. Well, let's moving on to, to, to other news this week. We had uh, confirmation that Eli Lilly's um, Vizenio has been approved by the FDA for um, certain patients with early stage um, HR positive, HER2 negative breast cancer. Uh, and it becomes the first drug in the CDK4-6 uh, inhibitor class to be approved uh, for breast cancer outside of the metastatic setting. Um, you know, if we cast our minds back, the data that sort of supported um, this approval was actually from the, uh, the phase three Monarch E study, which was presented um, over a year ago now at ESMO, uh, 2020. And um, guys, I, can't, I don't know if you remember, but at the time, um, the readout of these results kind of came at a very, very similar time to Pfizer confirming that their competing drug in the same class, Ibrantz, which is the much more widely prescribed treatment in the metastatic setting, had actually uh, failed to, to demonstrate you know, required efficacy in the adjuvant uh, in adjuvant stage patients. So this does look like it's it's kind of now a real opportunity for Eli Lilly to differentiate this drug versus the competition. Yeah, <clears throat> I remember that. There was, it was interesting how those both were out basically at the same time. And it seemed to be sort of a, a well, it seemed like it might result in a shift in the way that people are thinking of these CDK4-6 inhibitors. And I think you run some polls that have sort of suggested that that has come true in the, in the past few months or over the last year, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the sentiment has shifted around Vizenio slightly. And I think if you look at prescription data in the US market, you can see as well that um, you know, the market share for Ibrantz has, has, has sort of steadily declined. And most of that sort of uh, is being picked up by Vizenio. The interesting thing about this approval in particular is that um, based on the FDA label, it's, it's actually been approved for um, a subset of, of adjuvant stage patients who have a what's known as a KI67 score of 20% uh, or greater. Um, and Eli Lilly has, has said this week that the, you know, the biomarker, this particular biomarker is one that's relatively well known by oncologists in the breast cancer space, but it's not one that's typically been used in the past to determine treatment decisions. So I think there is going to be, um, there's going to probably, it's going to take some time maybe for Zenio to be, to be used in the adjuvant setting because of this. Um, but certainly there does seem to be 
you know, growing momentum for this drug, certainly versus Ibrantz. Um, the other thing that I think is worth noting is that the fact that you've got these two drugs that have, you know, delivered sort of divergent outcomes in the adjuvant setting, everyone's now waiting to see how the third drug in the class, which is Novartis's Kiskali, how that performs in a similar adjuvant stage uh, study, which is due to read out um, next year, I believe. Um, and there's been some analysts have kind of suggested, you know, whichever way that goes, it's either going to position Eli Lilly's drug as being, you know, perhaps unique among the CDK46 inhibitors, or if the Novartis study is also positive, it might put a bit more pressure on Ibrantz, which suddenly looks potentially inferior by comparison. So that's that's definitely going to be, um, you know, something to watch. And obviously, this uh, this drug class uh, is, is significant in terms of, you know, in terms of the revenues that these products generate um, in the major markets. Uh, Michael also wanted to touch um, this week on um, your conversation that you had with a key opinion leader about um, these the, these data that have sort of recently been presented for a number of drugs targeting OX40 um, for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Um, this is a market that, you know, is dominated by um, Sanofi and Regeneron's Depixent, but Sanofi is one of the companies that's looking at OX40 as an alternative mechanism of action. And we obviously saw some very, very early stage data presented earlier this month at a major European um, dermatology conference. What was the feedback that you had from the, the KOL you spoke to? Does he sort of perceive these as being potentially breakthrough therapies in the future based on what he's seen to date? Yeah, so quick short answer, no. <laughs> if you really want to boil it down. But yeah, it was, it was interesting sort of reading some analyst comments on where they think that these might fit in. Um, obviously, atopic dermatitis is a very hot indication at the moment, huge, um, huge market. You know, he basically, um, the analysts seem to be sort of, you know, interested, excited about what, what, this, what these data might mean. Um, and, and then I talked to the KOL and he was like, not nearly um, as sort of enthusiastic about the potential for these OX40 agents. So basically, he, what he said is what we know so far based on the data, which, you know, is sort of top line at this point. They haven't really gone into huge, huge detail. Um, or there's just not that much data available. You know, we're talking phase two studies, um, sort of smallish. So... Basically, what he said is the efficacy doesn't look as strong as Dupixent. Um, you know, it looks inferior to Dupixent probably and definitely inferior to JAK inhibitors. Um, and it also comes with some safety uh, concerns. You know, so hitting a OX40, he believes, will have a broader effect on the immune system which obviously raises questions um, for a, a condition like atopic dermatitis, where he's like, listen, we got Dupixent. It works in almost everybody. I might not get them to clear, but it, it works and helps almost everybody. And it's incredibly safe. So, you know, they're in his mind, 
these do not, these OX40 targeting agents likely don't really have a good chance of competing with Dupixent. So what it'll be is that they, if the, the data continue to bear out what we're seeing, that they'd likely compete with, you know, second or third or even fourth line options. Uh, those being antibodies against IL-13, which is a little more specific than Dupixent, uh, IL-31, and uh, then of course, JAK inhibitors which, you know, obviously that's, there's a cloud hanging over them at the moment. So what he's saying is that, you know, we'll see how the data shake out and we'll see sort of where these fit in, whether it be second, third, or fourth, he would sort of suggesting later, you know, third, fourth, maybe even fifth is where he thinks it will fit in. And the, the big thing there is for him, he thinks that's a rather small market, you know, relative to what people are expecting um, you know, for atopic dermatitis, given all these many billions in sales that uh, Regenera and Sanofi are getting with Tupixent, he says that, you know, once you get past that first and especially maybe second line uh, drug, he's not expecting that to be a very big opportunity. So uh, I think it's suffice, suffice to say his, um, you know, uh, expectations or enthusiasm for OX40 agents is, I would say, a fair bit lower than what we're sort of hearing from from some analysts. Okay, and it, it sounds like this is obviously all, you know, the, the the outlook for these agents, obviously is going to be primarily dictated by the clinical data. But you know how the FDA, um, you know how the the labeling that the FDA grants for the JAK inhibitors in atopic dermatitis will determine how they're positioned, and that's obviously going to have a knock-on effect for other drug classes as well. I thought it was interesting, you know, just just before, um, you know, we've spoken today, I noticed that in Europe, um, Pfizer's uh, next generation JAK inhibitor, so this is um, abracitinib, has actually been recommended for approval in atopic dermatitis um, and carrying a similar label to um, Illumiant, which is Eli Lilly's drug, and Rinbok, which is AbbVie's drug. And it's, it, you know, I, I would describe it as a pretty uh, broad label that basically um, says that, you know, the JAK inhibitors in Europe can be used to treat um, any atopic dermatitis patient with moderate to severe disease um, who requires systemic therapy. Um, and I think, you know, obviously it's going to depend on, on, on what the FDA does, um, you know, how that's going to compare in the US, I think is going to be a really interesting kind of scenario. I also noted that I, I'm pretty sure Rinbok has been approved in Canada for atopic dermatitis. Um, and it's been limited to, to severe patients. And I think it may, it may be in patients who are refractory to Dupixent as well. I'd need to double check that, but I think there was some sort of suggestion earlier in the week that maybe the FDA could be going down uh, a similar route to that. Um, because I'm pretty sure, Michael, the KOL you spoke to as well, was he was pretty surprised at how, um, you know, how aggressive the FDA had been towards the labeling for the new Insight um, JAK inhibitor in, in AD, which is actually... A, a topical version instead of an oral version yeah yeah he's he said uh the label looks terrifying i believe was was the word he he used but yeah he was surprised by how hard the fda came down on absolura 
the the topical um, agent from Insight. So you know, I think that suggests that FDA clearly, you know, they're unlikely to uh, <laughs> to take a step back from from their approach on JAK inhibitors and atomic dermatitis. Whether that means that they don't even get approved or not, talking about the systemic ones. I guess we'll see, but clearly they're going to come with a serious, serious label. Yeah. And, and I think it's also worth mentioning that, you know, the European approach to the oral jack inhibitors does seem to be slightly less conservative than what we're seeing from the FDA. If we look at Zelljans as well, which is obviously the drug which is at the center of this debate over safety um, in Europe, uh, where Zelljans coincidentally doesn't tend to be used nearly as much as it does in the US. Um, there is no uh, limiting factor in terms of it being required to be used after a TNF inhibitor, for example, which is the labeling that that um, you know, the FDA is bringing in, in in the US in the next couple of weeks or months. I think it, it's been announced, but I think it's going to be added to the labels in the near term future. Um, before we finish today, I wanted just to highlight a couple of other you know, big news stories. We heard late yesterday that um, an FDA ADCOM panel has voted in favour of um, booster shots with the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine in people aged 65 years and older and younger people who are, who are at particular risk of, of, of severe disease relating to COVID-19. Um, that mirrors the recommendations that were made um, not too long ago for the Pfizer vaccine. And I guess the other thing that I wanted to get your guys' opinions on um, is this rumour that uh, Robert Califf could be appointed by the Biden administration um, shortly as the new permanent FDA commissioner. Obviously, the agency's been, out, been without a permanent commissioner for about 10 months now. Um, guys, what are your thoughts on, on him as as the as the potential candidate that the government wants to put in place well i mean i think in, in his nomination hearings back in 2015 he did come under some scrutiny congressional scrutiny for pharmatize so I'm, I'm curious to see how that conversation turns this time around i'll just add that you know when so he was there when the surrupted drug uh, Exondus 51 was controversially approved. So, you know, he's been through some controversy himself. He wasn't the one that seems to be, a, seems to have been backing the drug. I know that Janet Woodcock was the one that really sounds like she was uh, in favor of, of approving it, but, you know, he allowed uh, it to, to come to markets. So obviously that is a, a controversial decision that he's been uh, associated with. I, I do remember when he was leaving in 2017, you know, he had a, I think he did a, some sort of uh, press conference or maybe just a, a uh, uh, spoke with a journalist. And he said that, you know, he said strongly politics does not have a place in science. <laughs> so, you know, interesting, uh, interesting sort of dynamic between those two uh, things. But, uh, you know, he's been there. He's done that. Um, you would think that he has sort of learned from his previous uh, stint there. So you'd think he'd sort of had a steady hand coming in when clearly there's a lot going on at FDA and, and they need somebody to be the, uh, the leader there. Yeah, that certainly seems to be 
well, assuming that, that the rumours are correct, that certainly seems to be, uh, the, you know, the rationale for, for him being nominated at this stage. Anyway, thank you, Virginia. Thank you, Michael. Um, and uh, thank you uh, to everyone who's listening. And um, we'll be back next week as normal. So thanks. Thanks.